welcome to the Redeemer 20 Sermon Podcast, where our goal is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. My name is Luke Dirks, and I'm your host, and I'm also privileged to lead the 20s ministry at Redeemer Church in beautiful Rockford, Illinois. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at our Thursday night gathering at 7 p.m. We hope you enjoy this, and we hope you also join us at a future Thursday. All right, y'all, open your Bibles. Yes. How's everyone feeling? Good? That's good. All right. Who, uh, who came in today that asking God speak to me? I want to I hear from God. Who came in like that? Because that's what happens every time we open God's word. He speaks to us. So open up to John chapter 2. Some of you are like, I need spiritual nourishment. That's why we're opening up the Bible. So uh, God's been teaching me this week a lot in my study of this text. And uh, most specifically is that he is a God uh, who provides far above what I need. He's abundant. I am a, I am a son of God. I am in his family and my cup is running over. <laughs> I'm blessed. And there is, there is an excitement, a joy, an abundance to being in God's family. If you're in God's family, you, are, you have that. And that, so I, I'm so, I was so encouraged that in John chapter 2, where we're going to be studying tonight, um, the very first miracle that Jesus did, it wasn't healing. <laughs> It wasn't storm chasing on the Sea of Galilee. It wasn't demon hunting. It was wine making. At a wedding. He made wine. And uh, tonight I, I think Jesus wants us, wants us to catch a glimpse of his character. And, and the point is this. Life with Christ is abundant. And so the title of my sermon tonight is Abundant Jesus. Who he is. He, he is abundant, and what he gives to those in his family, that describes him, abundance. So I have a lot to get through, a lot of content. Everyone say a lot. So we got to get right into the text. Get out your Bibles. John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? We'll get to that. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. <laughs> now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, it's like inside, like, hey, you know who made this for real? And the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, 
And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And he stayed there a few days. Oh, man. So let's, let's jump right in. The first thing here. It's so interesting that the very first place that Jesus manifests his power is at a wedding. Would you do that? If you, were, if you had come down you know, on a mission from God and you had superpowers, would you, would you use your first shot making wine at a wedding? Seems kind of odd, does it not? Um, but it's very fitting Jesus, that Jesus would go to a wedding. After all, he is the, uh, the inventor of marriage. He's the creator of marriage, attending a wedding. Insane. And uh, we get that from Genesis 2.24, right? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. That's God's design for marriage. One man and one woman for life. That's his good design. And, and weddings also not only were invented by Jesus, but are symbolic of Jesus. They point to who he is and, and his character, right? Because Ephesians 5, 25 says that um, husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And so uh, weddings, marriages are to, are to um, show us as a sign what, what Christ's relationship to this church is to look like. It's a beautiful picture. And here is the son of God, the inventor of marriage, the one marriage points to at a wedding in Cana. A little bit about weddings from this uh, time period. Um, weddings we were what everyone looked forward to. And I would say more than today. Weddings are exciting. I was at two this fall. Very, very fun. Very exciting weddings. Um, but in this time period, they were even more uh, anticipated. Um, what, what are you excited for in the next six months? My daughter is getting married. That's the only thing I can see. I've been planning. I've been saving. I'm excited for this wedding. That's, that's kind of how it was. And weddings uh, were a little different too. Because um, Isaac and Ava, uh, I had the privilege of attending your wedding. Um, your wedding was, how long do you, would you say it was? Eight or nine hours? That's pretty good. It's a good wedding. I, um, not as long as this one. <laughs> because back then, wedding feasts lasted for a week or more. It was like, hey, anybody getting married? Where's Nick and Courtney? Hey, so you're getting married in March, right? So you're gonna, let's just do it for a week. Let's just go for a week. Okay, well, let's, let's do this. I'm down. Uh, but that's how it was. That's what the weddings were back then. They were like, uh, request off work. I don't, I'm not mowing the lawn. Uh, I'm not cleaning the house. We're, we're just partying for a week because you're getting married. Anybody in? <laughs> Another thing is the groom would pay, which I uh, am not happy about now that I have a daughter. <laughs> it's like, I better start saving. Right, well, actually, I'm, I'm happy about now. Uh, I'd be happy to live in this time period when the groom pays because uh, I'm going to have to pay for my daughter's wedding, which is a blessing. I can't wait, Lord willing, if she gets married one day. Um, but the groom paid. And, and the other thing is they would invite as many people as possible. So some of you did more intimate weddings, like my wife and I just had our family. And some of you invited your, your extended uh, friends. But 
culture here was invite as many people as you know. Even if they're your enemies, invite them. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Just come to the wedding. And it was rude if you refused to come to a wedding. And then finally, uh, wine was plentiful at, at weddings, really in the culture at large. And if you're interested, I'm not going to dive super deep into, um, I'm not going to give you a complete theology on alcohol. What does the Bible say about alcohol? The Bible does have a lot to say. Um, but if you're interested, I have resources on the back table um, that just, it's a quick article on what does the Bible say about alcohol. So um, if you're interested, those are on the back table. But wine, wine was a big deal back then. Everyone had wine. Jesus and his disciples drank wine. Um, and what it was was just fermented grape juice, and it was about the same alcoholic con content as beer. That's kind of the consensus of what um, commentators say. Um, but wine was a symbol of wealth and prosperity. It, it depicted a full harvest. Um, and even, even in Amos chapter 9, um, the, the future fulfillment of the kingdom of God, heaven, right, is depicted by the abundance of wine. It, it literally says the mountains will drip sweet wine. That's a picture of the coming kingdom of God. So drinking alcohol, I got to just put this in before we continue. But drinking alcohol is not wrong if you are of the legal age. Um, but alongside the blessings of wine, the Bible warns us against drunkenness. And, and I think it's really important to say it's not wrong, but many people have made shipwreck of their lives through this. And so we need to be wise. We need to be so wise when it comes to alcohol. And so that's why I'd encourage you to grab a copy of that in the back. If we run out, let me know. I got more. Um, but all the same, wine was a symbol of wealth and prosperity. So when it comes to weddings, it was important to have it at your wedding. <laughs> um, even if you were, you were poor, you saved up every scrap of uh, penny you had so that people thought you were wealthy. <laughs> so that you could, you could pretend, like, I have wine for everyone at my wedding. Um, and it was so important that you could even be sued by your mother-in-law if you ran out of wine. And talk about drama. It's like, <laughs> you ran out of wine on the last day. It was, it was after it was done, Mom. Too bad. I'm taking you to court. <laughs> and so it is so important. That's, that's why um, I wanted to give you all that background because in verse 3 it says, when the wine ran out. Because, again, in our culture it's like, oh, the wine ran out? It's probably a good thing. You know my family? Like, Let's, well, not my family, but <laughs> yikes, yikes, yikes. Put my foot in my mouth. No, um, yikes. No, my, my, if you want to know how I personally treat alcohol, you can ask me later. But yikes, got to put my foot in my mouth sometimes. <laughs> so it's a, it's a bad, but in this culture, uh, running out of wine was a really bad thing. Um, and uh, so the wedding here. What, what I want you to understand is the wedding has come to a halt. has come to a halt. And it's not till this moment that Jesus acts. He's a guest, right? But soon he will become the most important guest at this wedding. And, uh, and um, write this down if you're, um, if you're taking notes. Jesus begins when I run out. Jesus begins when I run out. The wedding was out of wine. And sometimes, that is so true in our own lives, 
that we have to run out of what we have so that Jesus can show us what he has. Sometimes we have to run out of, we tried as hard as we could and we failed and we ran out for Jesus to show himself who he is. Because that's when his, his, his provision is best seen sometimes when we are at the end of ourselves. This wedding party would have never tasted this, the sweetest of wine had they not first ran out. And so it is the place of need that, that allowed the greatest display of blessing here. And so I want to ask you tonight, are you at a place in your life where you've run out? Have you run out of joy in your life? Have you run out of the relationships in your life? How about have you run out of peace? You can't sleep. God may be trying to bring you to a place of humility so that you run out. Sometimes running out is the best thing for us because we look up and see that how his, he is abundant. If you know Jesus, you will never run out. <laughs> so maybe I would ask you, what is, what is Jesus allowing you to run low on in this season of your life? so that you ask him for help? What's he allowing you to, to almost run out of so that you stop trusting in yourself, so that you stop relying on your own righteousness, your own strength, your own talents, your, your own time, your own job, your own skills? What is he allowing you to run low on? Because here, Jesus is at this wedding. And he was there the whole time. He saw, he knew the wine was going to run out, but he allowed it to take place. He allowed it to happen because that was the perfect setup for him to step in and say, now I will provide. Now I will see your lack and I will provide what you need. And so now we see the problem had arisen and Mary involves Jesus. She comes to Jesus and she says, they have no wine. Right? Verse 3, they have no wine. And what Jesus' response seems at first glance kind of respectful, disrespectful, right? It almost seems, he says, woman, which is not great dating advice. Guys, don't, uh, don't refer to your um, girl as woman. Um, but really, this is just a cultural barrier. This is an affectionate term. It's like, uh, it's like saying ma'am or um, something like that. It's, it's not... Um, it's, disrespectful at all. And, and if I can encourage you to, Jesus is actually miles ahead in terms of how he treats women in this society. And if you, if you don't believe me, wait, just wait till we get to John chapter 4. Because back in this time, women were not credible witnesses. They were not people that you would talk to. Um, and Jesus in John chapter 4 goes right up to this woman at the well in Samaria, saves her, uses her to evangelize a whole city, Anyway, we'll get there. All I'm trying to say is that Jesus was so far ahead of his culture in his treatment of women. He respected them. He loved them. He loved his mother. Uh, so I wouldn't want you to get the wrong uh, feeling from this. Um, but he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Um, and he says, my hour has not yet come. My hour. What does he mean by that? Anybody know what, what the hour Jesus is referring to? He, re, he refers to this many times in the Gospel of John. Anybody know? The hour. Yes, his crucifixion. That's the specific thing he's referring to. What he's basically saying is, Mom, 
I don't want to reveal myself yet. This is the, I've, not, I've, not, uh, I've not done a miracle yet. The time is approaching. Um, it seemed like he was reluctant to fully manifest his glory. And I think part of that might have been the fact that the crowds would latch onto the miracles rather than him as a person. And you see that when he healed the, uh, one of the lepers um, later, I think in, in, in the book of Mark, and he tells the leper, don't tell anybody that I healed you. But of course, he doesn't. He goes and tells a bunch of people. And Jesus has to then go out to the wilderness because there's so many people that are clamoring after him because he did a miracle, because the people loved the miracles instead of the teaching. And so I think here he's, he's um, hesitant. He's like, I don't know if I want to just do a miracle. But we know that this response to his mom, it wasn't, the, it wasn't him saying no, because he does something. Mary tells, us, tells the servants, I love her response. What is it? Everyone tell me what Mary says to the servants. Do whatever he tells you. I love this. Mary doesn't know what Jesus is going to do. She doesn't know how the problem is going to be solved. She doesn't know where the wine's coming from. She doesn't know what's the transportation of the wine. Who's the farmer? How are we going to get this? Jesus, how are you going to solve this? She doesn't know. But she seemed to say, I don't know how, but I know who. I know who to ask. She didn't know how it would be fixed. But she knew who he was. She knew that this was the creator of the world, Jesus. Even in Luke chapter 2, when uh, the angels came and they spoke of Jesus' birth and they said, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among, the, among those whom he is pleased. And they were saying it about the child, Jesus. And it says in verse 19 that Mary treasured all these things in her heart. She knew that this was the Messiah. She knew Jesus' character. And so while she did not know how this problem would be solved, she knew that he was the one who could solve it. And I think this is so good for us. Sometimes in our life, when we need a miracle, you don't need to know how. You don't always need to know how. You don't need to know all the details. You just need to know who. You don't need to obsess about every detail, about how, where, how will the situation turn out? Who, how am I going to reconcile with this person? How am I ever going to move there? How am I ever going to have a friendship with her again? You don't need to obsess about the details. You just need to know who to trust, who to go to. You need to know who your God is, who your provider is. One of the names of God is Jireh. Jehovah Jireh. You guys know what that means? God will provide. And while Mary did not know how, she knew who. She knew who. She knew who. And so maybe, maybe you. Where are you at? What are you wrestling through right now? And you want to know every detail of how it's going to play out, but it's keeping you from trusting in Christ. From leaning in and saying, God, I trust you. I don't know the details. I don't know how this is going to work out. But I know your character. I know you are an abundant provider. I just encourage you to press into that. Look at Mary's heart. I know who I am trusting. And so she tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. I don't know what it's going to be, but do whatever he tells you. So verse 6, now there were six stone jars 
water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, holding 20 or 30 gallons. And he tells the servants, fill them. I love this. Jesus is always lovingly provoking the religious leaders. Okay, you're like, how do, where are you getting that? Okay, he's, he's healing people on the Sabbath. The Pharisees are like, no, 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 tradition, tradition. And they would walk past a, a person that's lame. And I can't help them. It's tradition. And Jesus was like, no. Healing is, you heal on the Sabbath. You can help. And he tells that story about the donkey. Which one of you and your ox falls in a hole? Would you not get it out on the Sabbath? Uh, or um, or um, Mark 7. They had a problem with Jesus not washing his hands. <laughs> now Jesus washed his hands but before a meal. It wasn't like he was not a germaphobe. He's like, I don't need to wash my hands. Um, but he, he wouldn't wash his hands in the way that uh, the Jewish law required. He wouldn't check all the boxes that the Pharisees did. You know, wash the back of this hand and the front of this hand and the back of this hand and the back of this hand in that order. And then you use these uh, purification jars and that's how you wash your hands because then it will make you spiritually clean. But Jesus lovingly was always provoking them. He was trying to get them to see that, look, 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 look. I'm so much bigger than your tradition. You are setting aside the law for your tradition. And so here he is. He's like, <laughs> he's upending tradition because he wants to show them how empty their hearts are. These, are. these are purification jars that are used to cleanse. But he's like, fill them with wine. Dump them out. Fill them with wine. Look, I'm the true... Uh, I will give you cleansing anyway. I'm going to give you righteousness anyway. This water won't give you righteousness. I'm here. Put wine in it. You know, the religious leaders are like, Ugh. I filled those. I went to the water. I went to the river and back. In the river, 30 gallons. You know how long it took me to fill that? He's like, no. Turn it to wine. <laughs> I, I just, I, he's always loving the religious leaders, the people who are, are Pharisees, who are hypocrites, still loved him. So, um, so he says, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the top. It's always safe to do exactly and more of what Jesus tells you. So they filled the, fill the jars and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out some water and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. And when the master of the feast, which would be kind of like the wedding planner, when the wedding planner tasted the wine, the water now had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, what are you doing? Come on, man. Everyone serves the good wine first when people have drunk freely and then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. You've kept the good wine until now. See, it is at this point that Jesus, the guest, eclipses the main people in the wedding. He becomes the true bridegroom, the true wedding master. He brings the party. <laughs> he brings the joy. He provides what the groom's family cannot. And so, now we're going to get into my points. I just kind of talked through the section, but here we go. Get ready for four things. Four, um, four ways this passage forces you to change your mind about Jesus' character. It's a mouthful. 
But this passage forces you to change your mind. Some of us have such wrong preconceived notions about who Jesus is. All right? We have this picture of, of Jesus. He looks like this. He has this character. And we get up and we read the Bible every morning because we want a biblical picture of who Jesus is. And this passage really confronts us with that. So four, uh, four um, ways that this passage forces you to change your mind about Jesus. Point number one, he is abundantly joyful. Jesus is a joyful God. He is not a sour and, and grumpy God that requires a do this and do that and I, I am so unhappy with you. He's the type of God who delights in a celebration. <laughs> and here was a celebration of God's, one of God's institutions, a wedding. A week long, no expense spared, every penny we have, all the people we know, the loudest music we can. We are celebrating this marriage. And Jesus comes and makes more wine. He adds to the party. And, he's, and I just want to be clear, he's not condoning drunkenness, but he's, he's bringing the party. And I love this. He's, this is utterly destroying the fact that, or the belief that Christianity isn't fun. Right? A lot of people are like, ah, oh, Christianity's not fun. God isn't fun. God made fun. God made fun. God created fun. And, and uh, I, I, the world's fun is, is cheap. The world's fun is cheap. The world's fun is get drunk. Get high, watch porn, any temporal pleasure at the expense of future. That's the world's fun is cheap. It's cheap. Fun now, pain later. That's the world's fun. But God's fun is truly life-giving. It, it looks like celebrating life with those whom you love. It looks like attending weddings, celebrating new births. My brother-in-law just and, and my sister just had a baby two days ago. Cher uh, it looks like cherishing lifelong friendships, holding our community close. God's fun is healthy, it's sustainable, it's joyful. It doesn't sacrifice long-term peace for short-term gains. That's God's fun. And God's fun, I just, I, just, I just hate the fact that some people think that God isn't fun and the world is fun. No, the world is cheap. That's cheap fun. Some of you have, have, have done that, tried that. It's not fun. It just dries you out. It's pain. I have good news, though. You serve a joyful God who is abundantly joyful. He makes wine at a wedding. Do you have a wrong view of Jesus in this way? Do you, do you have a wrong view of Jesus? Number two, way this passage forces you to change your mind about Jesus. Number two, he's abundantly generous. Jesus is abundantly generous. He's the most happy person to give away. You see, in this passage, running out of wine is a terrible thing for this family. Back in this day, um, they lived in an honor-shame culture. It didn't matter if the wine was coming and, and, and oh, I really couldn't afford it or... Uh, something happened, didn't matter. That was shame upon your family if you didn't provide wine. And so Jesus, by making wine, was taking away the shame that they would have received. He was taking away the, 
the reproach that this family would have gotten for allowing their party to run out of wine. Jesus is so generous here. And, you know, me being a a numbers guy, I did the math. Six jars, 30 gallons. What's six times 30? 180, correct. And if you say, you know, about 25 ounces to a wine bottle, that's how many wine bottles? That's 920, I did the math. 920 bottles of wine that Jesus made at this wedding. He wasn't like, oh, you have a shortage. I, I got an extra one in my back pocket. He's like, no, I'll take care of this. I got this whole thing. And I just, I think this that's a picture of God's lavish, overflowing love. He's so generous. He's so giving. And some of us have this mentality like we're in the subway line and they're, they're rationing out meat. Like, here's one slice. And that's how we think God is. He's like, here's one slice of meat. Maybe two. Have anybody been to Subway and that's your problem too? I don't know. It's okay. That's why I don't go to Subway. But that's how, that's God's heart. It's not, it's not rationing. It's not cheap. It's not miserly. He's not penny pinching with his love. It overflows. He's abundantly generous. That's the God we serve. That's who Jesus is. And this passage just destroys that thought of a miserly God in your head. Don't let that exist. It's wrong. It's false. Number three, Jesus is abundantly glorious. And we see that in verse 11. It says, this was the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and it manifested his glory. So what was the purpose of this wedding? Why did he create wine there? To manifest his glory, to show himself off. It's the same with the wedding. Nick and Courtney, you're about to get married. So excited for y'all. And at the end of the day, it's not about us, right? Our, our marriage uh, is a picture of Christ's love for the church. It's about his glory, right? In the end. God gets the glory. It's all about him first. That's what these signs were about. And, and Jesus would go on to do seven signs in the book of John. He would, he would do this one, change the water into wine. He would heal the royal official's son. He would get the, the paralytic. He would tell him to take up his bed and walk. He would feed the 5,000. He walked on the water. He healed the blind man. He raised Lazarus. I can give you texts for all these if you want them after. You're like, I'm curious where these miracles are. But if you don't, if you don't get anything, get this. All those, why did he do it? Why did he make wine at the wedding? Why did he show himself off as this abundant God? So that he got, gets the glory. And if I could just impress upon you that your life is not about you. My life's not about me. All that we see has been made by our Heavenly Father. And it says that the sky above proclaims His handiwork. That the sky declares His glory. It's all about Him. And so when we live for our glory, we will always miss out on joy. We will always miss out on abundance. But when we realize that everything is for Jesus' glory, we can, we can live in right alignment to who God is. We can find joy. 
And finally, Jesus uh, changes our mind through this passage. Jesus is abundantly faith-strengthening. Faith-strengthening. Verse 11 says, He manifested His glory and His disciples believed in Him. His disciples were there at the wedding. They witnessed it. Really, it was only Mary, the servants, and the disciples who even knew. Right? The servants were like, he doesn't know that Jesus actually made this. Jesus did it so that they would believe. And in John um, chapter 21, we find the purpose of the whole book. John chapter 20. He did it so that we could believe in the Son of God. He wrote the book so that we could believe and that by believing we could have life in his name. This miracle ultimately flows to strengthen our faith in him. How's your faith? How are you doing with your faith? I just encourage you to look into this passage and see the power and the love of Christ and allow it to do its work in your heart. Maybe some of you need to, after, you need to go out to your car, you need to go home, and before you go to bed, you need to, you need to ponder and meditate on these things. And allow Jesus to strengthen your faith. Do you know, are you rightly related to Jesus here tonight? Are you rightly related to him? Because this is a story about Jesus taking away the shame of a family. The shame of running out and replacing it with the joy. With, with joy. And that's exactly what he does for all of us. Except we haven't run out of wine. We've run out of righteousness. And we need righteousness. If you're in here, you need righteousness. Because you can't trust your own righteousness. Your own righteousness doesn't cut it in God's court. According to God's law. We need the righteousness of another. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That we could have Christ's righteousness, that which we have run out of, that's which, that which we never had, we can have through Jesus. The Bible says we've all sinned, we've all fallen short. And apart from Christ, sin is a cancer, and it is coming for us, and there is no hope apart from Christ. The wages of sin is death. That means what you get when you have fun the world's way and you persist in it, and this is the way I'm going to go when you go that way, you get death. That's what this verse says, Romans 6.23. But it says the free gift of God is eternal life. It's a free gift. Even in, I could point you back to John chapter 1. John chapter 1.12, it says, As many as did receive Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Believe tonight and enter his abundance. We serve an abundant God, do we not? Such an abundant Jesus.